Hello there. This is the story of the Old Testament, and we are coming back, coming back to you. This is week 37 for the week of September 10th through 16th. We are in 1 Kings chapters 10 through 16. I love the book of 1st and 2nd Kings. Um, Don't let the number of kings distract you or bore you or make you think that this book is just repetitive because we see God's grace, God's power, God's law at work, and most of all, we see Jesus Christ coming in the midst of a dirty, messy, complex situation. And in the midst of a world like we live in, in the midst of a world like we find the the world which was in 1 Kings and 2 Kings is the world we find ourselves in today, we find Jesus Christ walking amongst us, healing us, and restoring us. That's what we're going to talk about today in 1 Kings chapters 10 through 16. So we're in the life of Solomon. We are here with the son of David. He's taken the throne. He is uh, wise. He's uh, a godly man for the most part. Of course, we know what happens later on in his life. Um, He's wealthy. He's rich. And he is the one who God decides and chooses and uses to build the temple of of God. So um, Solomon builds the temple earlier than chapter 10, right? Chapter 8. But I think it'll be helpful um, to think about Solomon and the temple and and all of that. So I want to start with, first of all, looking back, kind of reflecting on 1 Kings 8. This is by Bradley Gray. Um, a king greater than Solomon and a place better than the temple. There is a surprising sense of positivity surrounding the historian's description of Solomon's kingly activities in 1 Kings 4 through 11. Surprising, perhaps, because we know the eventual end. How Solomon began is not how he finished. Nevertheless, we ought not to let that fact eclipse what the scriptures aim to show us through these tedious chapters detailing Solomon's reign. As 1 Kings 8 begins, the temple is complete. After seven years of construction, now was the time for the dedication of the temple proper. That is, the public commitment of the people and the building to Jehovah's service. This elaborate ceremony not only served to immortalize and commemorate the temple's intended purpose, but also remind the Israelites how different their God was. So says Solomon, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below, who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Some today like to lump the God of the Bible in with the rest of humanity's gods, making him just another in the laundry list of supreme cosmic beings before which we bow in homage and humility. In ways that are not worth our time recounting, modern scholars demean the God of Scripture by normalizing him in the index of other deities. He's just one among the rest, they claim. He's no different. Such are the assertions of many who wish to discredit the Christian faith. But of course, we know this to be untrue. Ours is a God unlike any other. He is not one among many. He is the one and only. There is no other. Even still, what makes 1 Kings 8 so compelling is that through Solomon's dedicatory prayer, a spotlight is brightly shown on how disparate Israel's God is by commemorating the temple's very form and function. Its structure served to confirm that the only God worth trusting and believing is the God of Israel, which, as it happens, is our God too. 
The temple dedication begins with King Solomon assembling the elders and religious leaders of Israel together in order to transport the ark from the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies. This, as you might imagine, is a very momentous occasion for the people of Israel. This event signified that the era of the portable tabernacle had come to an end. Those days of repeatedly setting up and tearing down the tent of sacrifice as Israel wandered were done and over. There was now a permanent house in which the Lord would dwell. God's people were now settled. Such is what Solomon testifies. The Lord said that he would dwell in total darkness. I have indeed built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. Even more significant, however, than the promises of than the promise of God's settling is the promise of his presence. And this promise is fulfilled in a very obvious way. As the priest put the ark in its place, that is, the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place beneath the wings of the cherubim, a thick cloud of smoke filled the entire house. Resolved not to allow for anyone to miss what's going on here, the historian quickly comments that this is none other than the glory of the Lord filling the temple. The cloud is a token a sacrament of God's presence filling the entire place. Solomon then takes the opportunity to openly affirm that this is in keeping with what God has already promised. This unmistakable sign that God was there was, of course, meant to draw the Israelites' minds back to the days of the tabernacle. Thus, as the people of Israel stood in the middle of that cloud of glory, they were reminded that theirs is a God who keeps every single one of his promises. Just as he said, he has brought them to a place of dwelling, of permanence, of rest. Such is the prevailing message of Solomon's open blessing. Solomon then turns and prays corporately on behalf of the entire congregation of Israel. This invocation, which is in fact one of the longest recorded prayers in scripture, has as its prevailing concern the uniqueness of Israel's God. Lord God of Israel, Solomon declares, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. Jehovah isn't like other gods. He is truly one of a kind. But why? How? What makes him so unique? To it, Jehovah is a God of his word. What makes the God of Israel so distinct is that he actually keeps the covenants he makes with his people. Pagan deities were not known for their faithfulness. In fact, you'd be more right in describing them as fickle, erratic, and inconsistent or inconstant. Such is why adherents to these other gods were tirelessly striving for ways to appease them, to make them happy. Those devoted to invented deities were never sure what they were going to get, precisely because they were praying to a god who could not execute anything for which they were pleading. Such is what makes Israel's god different. Jehovah is a god who keeps his word the real foundation of the temple, comments Dale Ralph Davis, does not consist of huge blocks of stone. The temple rests upon the promise of Yahweh. He covenants with his people and mercifully keeps those same covenants. Yes, even after they have been broken. The Israelites would have been reminded of this every time they walked up the steps to the temple. In 1 Kings 7, 15 to 22, we are told about two massive pillars erected at the entrance to the house of the Lord, which were cast out of pure brass. These pillars are given names, the one Jachin, the other Boaz. This isn't in an inconsequential detail. These columns are themselves tokens of God's promises. Jehovah's abiding words for his people are Jachin, meaning he will establish, and Boaz, meaning his strength will perform it. What God promises, his power will bring about. 
You and I have a God who keeps his promises. He always does what he says he will do. And I don't say that as some winsome platitude to make you feel better. I say that as one who believes wholeheartedly that that is true. Your life and mine is upheld as with pillars of brass by none other than this promise-keeping God. Another way in which Israel's God was different appears if we take note of another word that is repeated throughout the chapter. In verses 28 through 52 of 1 Kings 8, the words hear or hearken are used some 13 times, which, of course, is suggestive of Jehovah's most distinct quality. Namely, he is a God who hears. Listen, says Solomon, to your servant's prayer and his petition. Lord, my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you today. Hear the petition of your servant and your people Israel, which they pray toward this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. That fact alone is remarkable in and of itself, but is made even more remarkable by what Solomon declares in verse 27. But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Solomon acknowledges God's uncontainability, his immensity. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone the walls of this house. He's too massive, too glorious. But, and this is where it gets good, despite that, this uncontainable God descends to hear us. Jehovah, though being a God too immense to fathom or ever figure out, is a God who hears the cries of his creatures. He has respect unto our prayers, turning toward us to listen to us. You see, the temple was a type of sacrament to God's uncanny availability. He is beyond comprehension, but still always available. Always attentive, you and I have a God who hears our prayers. He is no inanimate idol. He is not lifeless. He is the living God who has ears that are ever turned towards his children. Perhaps most, perhaps most noteworthy of all, however, is not merely the fact that Israel's God hears his people's cries, but that he forgives them. Five times Solomon appeals to God's heart to hear and forgive. Each time this word appears, it is a petition for God's merciful pardon to be renewed in, with, and for his people. This is in keeping with what God previously covenanted. God's insistence that he will remember his word is an assurance of the forgiveness that he alone possesses and he alone delights to dispense. Davis writes, The sins of God's people will not maroon them in a hopeless cul-de-sac of guilt, but even in their sins there is a future and a hope because the God of the Bible brings his severity upon his people in order to lead them back into his mercy. You see, what makes Israel's God unlike any other God is that he can truly pardon iniquity. God's forgiveness is genuine forgiveness, actual cleansing for actual sins. It is reminiscent of what the reformer Martin Luther says when he writes, If you are a preacher of grace, do not preach a fictitious but the true grace. If grace is of the true sort, you will also have to bear true, not fictitious sins. This is no imaginary construct. This is no metaphysical feel-good message. This is a capital F forgiveness for the deepest and darkest of sins. This is forgiveness with a face. You and I have a God who pardons all our wrongdoing by taking all of them onto himself. He doesn't zap us into oblivion at the first sign of rebellion. Indeed, rather, he patiently brings us to the end of our rope where he is waiting for us, ready to forgive, to pardon, to renew, to restore. Solomon then closes the ceremony with a benediction for the whole congregation of Israel. 
This final word of supplication is so resonant for us today, precisely because what Solomon prays for for is what we need too. Verses 56 to 61 essentially constitute a summarization and personalization of everything for which Solomon has petitioned thus far. Everything about the promises and presence and attentiveness and pardon of God, Solomon offers as a blessing over the people. But what is manifest in this benediction is that seemingly innocuous phrase at the end of verse 59. May my words with which I have made my petition before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night. May he uphold his servant's cause and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Solomon is here invoking God's maintenance and sustenance of all his people for all their days. He then specifies that petition from all times to as the matter shall require or as each day requires. May God, Solomon prays, maintain our every day, our every hour, our every waking moment. Such is what would keep Israel wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, walking in his statutes and keeping his commands. It was God sustaining them, God maintaining their every step, God accomplishing these things in and through his people's everyday lives. Isn't that what you and I need too? Indeed, you and I won't get very far in this life without God upholding us with his hand. Each of these aspects of the temple prove just how different Israel's God was. May all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God. There is no other. And the good news for you and for me is that we have the same God. Furthermore, we have even more tangible and unmistakable evidence that his words to us and for us are true. No, we don't have a temple, so to speak, but we have something better. We have the cross. The cross is the place where every promise of God is kept in full. The cross is the place where every cry of the desperate is heard. The cross is the place where every life is sustained by God's amazing grace. The cross is the place where every sin is forgiven. This, you see, is the gospel of the temple. It is the glad tidings that God's Son brings about everything that God's house signified. Jesus came to do in flesh and blood what God had only done in wind and voice in the Old Testament, writes Dane Ortland. Jesus Christ, therefore, is the true and better temple where, declares Reverend Alexander McLaren, God's name is set and where men may behold the manifested Jehovah and meet with him. He is the yes and amen of every temple promise. You and I have a truer and better assurance precisely because we have the life death, and resurrection of Christ. We have the one who is the dwelling place of God in bodily form. Even now in our day, God's promises are being fulfilled. Not one promise has slipped his mind. Nothing has upended his plans. He is building us a house in which he and we will dwell forever. His kingdom is as sure as his promises. And have any of those ever failed yet? So there we go. The temple, that was the context in which Solomon's reign and ministry, that was his major accomplishment, right, that God used him uh, to build the temple. And yet it's not long after, right, the Queen of Sheba comes, and then later on, though, we see Solomon fall. Um, He's led astray by multiple wives to worship and follow the, the idols that he just prayed against and said that the Lord was so different from. And so Solomon, though a believer, is like you and me, Uh, still a sinner. And so we wonder about how does this sin fit into God's plan? How can this be part of God's plan? It's confusing, isn't it? 
How can God take the evil, even our own evil that we commit, and make that part of his plan for good? Well, that's the next section here. 1 Kings 11, we want to talk about it's all part of the plan, again, by Bradley Gray. One of the prevailing marks, which I think irrefutably evidences the fact that the Bible is not a human invention, is the precise fact that human ineptitude is never glossed over. Flip through the pages of Scripture, and you will likewise flip through countless examples of mankind's failures. The horrors of human life are continually on display, from extortion to bribery to lust to betrayal to revenge. The Old Testament often sounds more like a reality television show than anything else. What's more, the Bible is never skimpy on detailing the blunders of even its best characters. Abraham, David, Peter, and the like are all included in its index of vice, corruption, and failure. This runs contrary to human logic and reason. We are instinctually given to zealously accusing, excusing, explaining, and erasing our failures from the record books. You no doubt feel this pressure in your own life. You cannot bear to think about your failures being broadcast for all your friends and family to see, let alone the entire world centuries after you are gone. But this is precisely what happens in Scripture. Folks from all walks of life have some of their worst moments immortalized forever. I take this to be among the clearest indications of of divine involvement in the construction of the biblical narratives. If the books of Israel's history were mere human contrivances, they would look much more like propagandist material meant to revive national patriotism. The blunders of Israel's kings would be jettisoned in favor of making it apparent that her exile was the result of circumstances beyond her control. If one kings was anything other than a divinely inspired book of truth, there would have been some other explanation given to account for Solomon's decline in the dissolving of his kingdom. Instead, we are given an explicit reason as to why and how this all occurred. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods. But Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, Since you have done this and and did not keep my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. You see, God has a different story to tell. The story God tells in the Bible is less concerned with mankind's ability than it is his own sovereignty over all things and times and events and peoples. The scriptures not only say that there is no God like Jehovah, they prove it over and over again throughout the course of history. No other God even comes close to the Lord Jehovah in power, in majesty, in might, in glory, in grace, in patience. And nowhere is this more evident than in the story of Solomon's fall from grace, which constitutes 1 Kings 11. This chapter showcases God's unique, unparalleled hold over and involvement in mankind's history in order to bring about his desired ends. Among the words that stand out in the message of warning from the Lord is the word tear or rend. It is repeated in verses 12 through 13, stressing the magnitude of the impending judgment. As a consequence for Solomon's infidelity and indiscretion, God was set to shred the grandeur of Solomon's empire into tiny bits. The magnificent kingdom that flourished under Solomon's rule would be fragmented, torn apart by his own descent into corruption, a dismal end to a once promising reign, and all of that was entirely unnecessary. I say this was unnecessary because it is not as though Solomon, and by proxy Israel, was not warned. Scripture is brimming with references detailing the manifold warnings against the very thing Solomon was wholeheartedly pursuing. All of which to say, this outcome was entirely avoidable. Solomon chose to go after other gods. 
He made the deliberate decision to compromise his devotion to the one true God by entertaining these other voices and philosophies and vices. And in so doing, he instigated the ruin of the kingdom with which he was charged to steward as God's anointed leader. Solomon ignored the warnings. Therefore, God was stirred to anger. Where the hearts of God's people were supposed to influence the nations to worship the one true God, they were being influenced in the opposite direction. This amounted to a veritable dethroning of God. His sovereign choice to bless Israel was dismissed and disdained, which of course is something God takes very seriously. And as it is within his sovereign ability to grant blessings, it is also within his sovereign ability to take them away, to rend them from his people's hands. He is both the sovereign giver and taker. I will tear the kingdom away from you, rebukes the Lord, and give it to your servant. Like Solomon, our wayward pursuit of other gods often ends with God intervening and interrupting our lives in very demonstrable ways. One of the most fascinating aspects about this word of judgment on Solomon, however, is that even as it details the profound penalty that is about to occur, it is infused with patience. It is interesting to note that this tearing apart of Solomon's kingdom would not come about in his lifetime. It is only after Solomon is dead and gone that this rupture would take place, which I think suggests two things. One, that up until his death, Solomon could have repented. Perhaps by that point, it might have been too late and God's chastisement would have been experienced regardless. But even still, the opportunity to repent was ever before Solomon. Such was the prevailing theme of his dedicatory prayer for the temple. But also, too, that up until his death, Solomon resisted the Lord's admonishment to repent. As noted previously, God's warnings went unheeded as Solomon plunged himself and all of Israel along with him into corruption. But not only was the king dismissive of his Lord's words of warning, he also disregarded the most obvious of God's disciplinary measures, which were undoubtedly meant to stir him to repentance. In 1 Kings 11, 14-28, the historian relays the account of three separate men, Hadad, Rezon, and Jeroboam, who are stirred up by the Lord himself to instigate conflict in Solomon's otherwise peaceful domain. Through both internal and external contention, God was seeking to recapture Solomon's attention. But how does the king interpret these conflicts? As nothing but ill-advised attempts to procure power and steal his throne, which deserve to be dealt with, in swift bloodshed. The events of 1 Kings 11 ought to compel us to recognize the unswerving patience of the Lord our God. Those years of pleading and prodding with Solomon's soul through this warning and that served as patent evidence that God wanted Solomon to turn back to him. And yet, despite that, he stubbornly chases after the wind. But perhaps the most compelling aspect of God's pronouncement of judgment on Solomon is the glimmer of grace that is present in it. Sometimes that is a hard truth to recognize, the grace of God's punishment and chastisement. But it is a predominant truth of Scripture that the Lord derives no joy out of punishing his children. And the same is true here. Inherent in this divine pronouncement of judgment is the promise that his word, read covenant with David, would remain. For David's sake, God was going to both delay punishment and entrust a shard of the ruptured kingdom to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. In so doing, God was ensuring the fulfillment of, excuse me, I've missed my spot, of what of that which he promised beforehand. Namely, that the throne of David would be established forever. 
This is clarified further in the prophet Ahijah's oracle to Jeroboam. However, I will not take the whole kingdom from him, but will let him be ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose and who kept my commands and my statutes. Solomon had utterly failed to uphold the conditions of the Davidic covenant. However, despite his unfaithfulness, God pledges not to take away the light of Israel. He keeps his word. This is the prevailing theme of scripture itself, evidenced in life itself. God always keeps his promises, even if when we don't. God is always faithful, even if or when we aren't. He never breaks a promise he makes with us. The rhythm of the Bible reminds us how the covenant maker becomes the covenant fulfiller on behalf of the covenant breakers. This is God's way with the world. Imagine, though, that you are one of the original readers of this historical account. You are an exiled Israelite, now recalling the abhorrent failure of the house of David. All of the wretched realities about which God warned King Solomon have come true. Indeed, you are still feeling the horrid consequences of his infidelity. You might be given to ask, how is this in keeping with God's promises? How is this part of the plan? Did God fail? Did he make a mistake with that covenant with David? In short, no, God did not fail. Even in this moment, his plans were moving forward. You see, this moment in Israel's history is proof positive that God can bring good out of anything and everything bad. His power runs so deep, asserts Dane Ortland, that he is able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. That is sort of his specialty. Despite the rupturing of Israel's kingdom being primarily a self-inflicted wound brought about by their own duplicity, God was not about to relinquish his plans with them and for them. Yes, there would be affliction, but not abandonment. This humiliation wouldn't last forever. There was a day on the horizon when all this disruption would be mended. The division would cease and the fragmented kingdom repaired. True and everlasting peace would reign, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. This, to be sure, is the penultimate outcome of the gospel, which finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ alone. The light of Israel, which never burns out, is ultimately and finally fulfilled in Jesus. He would be the true and better king of Israel, whose reign would be marked by true and everlasting peace. He would be the king whose precise ministry would be to assemble the outcasts and gather together the dispersed. So says the Lord through his prophet Amos, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all of the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Accordingly, despite Solomon's and Israel's abject failure, God's plans were still on track. Nothing had delayed them or impeded their succession. And even more good news, this is still true in our day as well. Well, we'll stop there today, um, but you can see the the pathway that Solomon takes, right, with um, idolatry is the path that we see Jerob, uh, um, Jeroboam uh, follow in chapter uh, 12, right? Remember, um, God rips the kingdom apart under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is foolish, and Jeroboam... Um, takes over the king, uh, is the king of Israel. Rehoboam rules over Judah. 
And we see um, Jeroboam sets up these golden calves, which become a stumbling block to the people of Israel for a long time. We also see this interesting story in, in 1 Kings 13 about the man of God and the prophet, um, a prophecy against Jeroboam in chapter 14. Um, and then we see again uh, a mixture of kings, right? Um, the, the sons of David who are, some are good, some are bad. Israel's kings are, well, none of them really does much good at all. Um, and they all eventually succumb to uh, to evil and and sin and idolatry, I suppose, of, of sorts. And so eventually we're going to get here as we read this week in chapter 16, eventually we're going to get to this guy named Ahab, who is notoriously bad. And we will see then, though, that God raises up a prophet, a unique prophet named Elijah, Elijah, who will be used by God to once again proclaim the message of the true God, of his power, of his judgment, but also of his preserving grace, um, even to his people in the midst of an idolatrous and unfaithful world. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Thanks for listening. Take care. God bless.